millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A few weeks ago, as foreign policy experts made their predictions for trouble spots in 2022, nobody had put Kazakhstan on their list. But last week, furious protests and violent clashes swept across the country, forcing the cabinet to resign and burning government buildings. A state of emergency was declared, the internet was switched off, and protests were violently quelled by the military, with a little help from Russia. Terrorists continue to damage public and private property and use weapons against citizens. I give an order to law enforcement agencies and the army to shoot to kill without warning. What is happening in the former Soviet state and what might it mean for Putin's Russia? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today... What's fueling the protests in Kazakhstan? Yesterday, in a small ceremony in the city of Almaty, the Russian soldiers who'd been deployed to prop up the president in Kazakhstan saluted, sang their national anthem and began to withdraw. After a fortnight of violent unrest, order had been restored. This is a nation on the brink. What started earlier this week as a peaceful protest against a sudden hike in fuel prices rapidly escalated into a full-blown uprising. The violence comes as mass demonstrations over surging fuel prices in Kazakhstan entered a fourth day. Last night, Thousands marched in defiance of a curfew and ban on mass gatherings. The president of Kazakhstan has ordered his security forces to use lethal force on protesters after days of unrest. Police in Kazakhstan's largest city, Almaty, tell state media that dozens of protesters have been killed in what they call an attempt to storm administrative buildings and police stations. As riots raged across the country, my colleague Peter Conradi Europe editor at the Sunday Times and a former Moscow correspondent was watching closely. The immediate trigger for the protests was a rise in the price of LPG, which is liquefied petroleum gas, which is what a lot of people in Kazakhstan use to fuel their cars. And the price of it 
almost doubled on New Year's Day. And this led to rioting in a town called Janaozen, which is in the far west of the country on the Caspian Sea. Ironically, it's actually an oil producing town. And people started to riot there in protest at the price rise. And these protests spread very, very quickly across the country. And bear in mind, this is a vast country. This is sort of a couple of thousand miles from one end to the other end. Were most dramatic in Almaty, which is the, the country's largest city, the former capital, right in the southeast. We begin with a developing story. Protesters have reportedly stormed and set fire to government offices in Kazakhstan's largest city, Almaty. Almaty Airport, alarms blaring and almost deserted, ransacked by protesters on Tuesday afternoon. Kazakhstan's commercial capital at a standstill after more than 24 hours of violence. Where it led to sort of mass uprising, rioting on the street, sort of street battles with the army. And just sort of paint a picture for us of what some of those battles look like. We are having to really sort of get an idea of what happened from a distance. We're reliant on clips from social media. With the internet out, it's hard to know what's really going on in Kazakhstan's largest city, Almaty. But the limited images, including of government buildings gutted and on fire, are grim. Various other things kind of floating around. But it seems to have been very, very dramatic indeed. I mean, according to the official statistics, at least 164 people were killed, which is an enormous amount of people to be killed in street protests. More than 8,000 people arrested. There have been reports of Kazakh troops just firing on peaceful demonstrations by civilians. There's also a sense in which the protests weren't entirely peaceful, that they began to get out of hand, that the protesters themselves started engaging in various kind of violent actions. So it's just a very, very rapid degeneration into, one could say, almost complete anarchy. It does look like, from a distance, like it was just a tinderbox waiting for a tiny flame. How did the authorities respond to the chaos on the streets? The president, a gentleman called Kasim Jomak Tokayev, responded by basically getting the troops out and clamping down very, very hard on the demonstrators. Terrorists continue to damage public and private property and use weapons against citizens. I gave an order to law enforcement agencies and the army to shoot to kill without warning. He claimed that they were terrorists, that they were being directed from abroad, that this was some kind of plot, an uprising to topple him. And he went very hard against them and after a few days appeared to have crushed the revolt. Uh, peace appeared to have returned, but at a very, very high cost in terms of human life. This morning, an uneasy calm on the streets of the city, and by calm, read fear. At night, when we hear explosions, I'm scared. It hurts to know that young people are dying. I'm a mother myself, and it hurts my heart. And somehow, into an already flammable mix, you've got the Russians sending in troops. The president asked the Russians to send in about 
2,500 troops. Strictly speaking, it wasn't just the Russians. There's something called the Collective Security Treaty Organization, which groups Russia and five other former Soviet countries, including Kazakhstan. The request was made to this organization, but it's very clear that the main muscle behind it was Russian. And so the Russian forces came rumbling over the border from Russia into the north of Kazakhstan and essentially took up positions in the capital, a city now called Nur Sultan, which is sort of named after President Sultan Nazarbayev, the former president. The Russian troops don't seem to have been involved in actual action against the demonstrators, but they were there, I think, as a kind of a a backstop because the president was concerned that his own troops perhaps might not be loyal to him, whereas uh, I think he knew that that the Russians would be. Why would a president feel he could trust Russian troops more than his own? And why was the country so quick to turn fuel protests into a national uprising? To understand what's happened in the last fortnight, we really have to look back at how Kazakhstan has been governed over the last three decades, ever since it left the Soviet Union. The man who shaped the country and many of its problems during that period was its first president, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, a man who Peter, it turns out, knows well. (laughs) Yes, I don't know really whether to be uh, embarrassed about this, proud about this, uh, neutral about this. But anyway, yeah, in the interests of full disclosure, my own involvement with Kazakhstan does go back rather bizarrely more than 30 years to when I was correspondent for another newspaper based in Moscow at the time when the Soviet Union was falling apart in 1991. I received a phone call from a a literary agent for whom I'd already written a book on a completely different subject saying, would you like to ghostwrite the autobiography of the president of Kazakhstan? I mean, that's quite an offer. It is quite an offer, actually. Of all the bizarre offers I've had in my life, professional offers, that is, I think it's probably one of the more curious. Peter was given the job of writing the English autobiography of President Nazarbayev, who ran the country from 1990 until he stepped down in 2019. Although many believed he never really relinquished power even then. I was called in and I was given the original rather turgid Russian text and was promised a number of meetings with Nusultan Nazarbayev. And in the course of those meetings, we sort of fleshed out his story and uh, turned it into a book, which is probably gracing a number of remainder bins around (laughs) the country, even as we speak. Out of print, I think. And Peter, just to sort of clarify, we have a very different image of him now, three decades on, uh, and we'll come on to that in a moment. But just remind us, how was he seen at the time when you agreed to help him with his autobiography? What did you know of the man? Well, I should first point out that I, I'm, I'm not in the habit of hanging out with tyrants. At the time, he was perceived to be a good thing or a relatively good thing. Admittedly, he was a former communist apparatchik. He had been nominated by Mikhail Gorbachev, the then Soviet president, to lead the then Soviet Republic of Kazakhstan in 1989. But, you know, by the standards of the time, he was a fairly, one could say fairly liberal figure, certainly compared with his counterparts in the neighbouring 
Central Asian republics. And when the Soviet Union broke up in 1991, he led his country to independence. He managed to hold the country together. It, it was potentially a sort of fairly volatile mixture because there were a large number of Russian, ethnic Russians living there, a large number of Kazakhs, a lot of other nationalities, be it Koreans, be it Uzbeks, be it Kyrgyz, all manner of different people. And at the time, other republics, particularly in the south of the former Soviet Union, were going through all sorts of convulsions. There was a lot of kind of inter-ethnic violence. He managed to avoid all of that. The country remained stable. But essentially, I think what happened as time went on is that the country became less and less democratic. It was turned very, very gradually into a one-man state. Nazarbayev himself and his family wielded all the power. Democratic opposition was sort of squashed at first gently and then much more strongly. The country has just gradually turned into a fairly typical autocratic post-Soviet kind of country. And before it became like that, when you were first um, introduced to the president at the time, Nazarbayev, I mean, talk us through that meeting. I had a number of meetings with him, both in Moscow and in Almaty, which was the then uh, Kazakh capital. I suppose the most memorable one um, was when I was summoned to see him by his people. And I was told he's in a sanatorium on the outskirts of Moscow. And it was a winter's day. I remember it very well in the early 1990s. And so I, of course, thought, gosh, I'm going to meet the president of Kazakhstan. I'll put on my suit. I'll put on my tie. Look smart. You know, it's not often one gets a one-to-one -one meeting with a president. And I set off to the sanatorium, which was a kind of a classic Soviet idea of what luxury was like. Nothing like sort of Western luxury, but lots of sort of wood panelling, all a little bit antiquated, all a little bit stuffy and whatever. And I remember being led by an aide through the long corridors of the sanatorium and brought, in fact, to his room, to the president's room in the sanatorium. And there he was, the door opened, and he was he was wearing his pyjamas. <laughs> a more intimate view than you're expecting. Precisely. I'm, I'm racking my brains now to remember what kind of pyjamas they were. Were they silk? Were they <laughs> elegant? I'm not sure. They were sort of presidential pyjamas. We proceeded to talk about his life. At some point, we decided to go for a walk. So he disappeared, put his clothes on, and we were sort of out walking in the grounds, in the snow. You know, he was friendly. He was charming. I was also struck by the way that he addressed me in Russian. We were speaking in Russian. He addressed me with tu, which is almost like in French, you have tu, the kind of informal form rather than vous. So it was the same thing as a sort of slightly avuncular air. It's something you would talk to someone in your family, but also as a leader, you would talk down to your people who would themselves uh, be expected to reply to you with the word vous, which is like vous in French. So, of course, I then respectfully called him vous, and he continued to t me. 
It may be a simple matter of grammar, but it was a hint of the disparity that would soon be established between the people and the despotic president. We'll have more on how the hopes for an independent Kazakhstan unraveled and what its current state of unrest might mean for its Russian neighbours. That's coming up after a quick word from a colleague. I'm Mariella Frostrup, and every day on my show on Times Radio, we speak to some of the biggest names in the world of the arts, culture and politics. We bring you discussions about new social trends and all the latest news, views and interviews. We can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. Peter, you've had quite a rare front row seat on a portion of Kazakhstan's history. Back in the early 90s, it had just become an independent nation. and There's all this hope, great resources, great wealth, and the chance of it becoming a democracy. How, over the last three decades, did all of that go wrong? Let's say it hasn't gone completely wrong, I think. There has been considerable economic development of the country insofar as its energy resources have been exploited in a much more efficient and a much more effective way than they were during the Soviet years. But there have been two major negative things. Firstly, I think the proceeds of this economic development have been very, very unfairly shared. There's Huge amounts of the money from energy has flowed into the hands of a relatively small number of people, of whom quite a large proportion have direct links with Nusultan Nazarbayev, the former president. And just give us a sense of how much wealth we're talking about there. There was a report by the accountants KPMG in 2019, and they found that just 162 people in Kazakhstan owned half the country's wealth. Now, I mean, even by the standards of some of the more unequal countries in the world, you know, that's absolutely extraordinary. You've got a population of 20 million, and of that 20 million, 162 have got half of the wealth. And surprise, surprise, or not very surprise, surprise, a lot of that wealth has found its way into assets, into the property market, the London property market in particular, Another survey uh, done relatively recently suggested that the elite, which is essentially probably this 162 or so, possess 530 million pounds of luxury property in London and the southeast of England, 
And the 330 million of it belongs to the extended family of the former president, Nazarbayev. So it's a fairly kind of bleak picture. The second problem is that this has been accompanied by growing repression, by conditions which make it impossible for the opposition to function, which means that when people are unhappy, and as, as they invariably are, when they realise just how you know, unfair the system is, the only channel which they have to change or to protest about it is to take to the streets. And when they take to the streets, often things, things get quite out of hand. I mean, that explains why when protests start in one place in the country, they would very rapidly take hold. You can understand people wanting to finally be able to channel some of their frustration. Has this happened before? I mean, have we seen protests playing out before and have they been effective? These men are venting their anger at police and a stage erected to celebrate Kazakhstan's Independence Day. The violence is the unhappy outcome of a standoff between the authorities and over a thousand oil workers dismissed earlier this year for illegal strike actions. There have been uh, a number of protests over the years in Kazakhstan. I mean, in fact, the, the town of Janowazan, where these protests started, was the scene back in 2011 of quite violent protests, which ended with the death of 14 people. These demonstrations were put down quite dramatically and quite bloodily. So, you know, there have been protests all over the place from time to time in Kazakhstan. I think what is what is interesting this time is just quite how dramatically they've they've exploded, how they've gone from being something localised to being something much broader. And it's difficult to know precisely why that is. There are a number of theories around. I mean, one of them is just simply that it's, it's cumulative. As time goes on, people get more and more fed up. And when the trouble starts, it tends to spread. Possibly there's been the effect of COVID, which hasn't been managed terribly well in Kazakhstan. But there's also the suspicion, which is quite intriguing and, and, and difficult to prove, that the protests, particularly those in Almaty, the former capital and the largest city, have been fueled in a sense by a power struggle between Nazarbayev, the former president, and Tokayev, the current president. In 2019, after almost 30 years as president, Nazarbayev had stepped down and appointed a man who was thought to be one of his staunchest supporters, Kasim Jomart Tokayev, to take his place. It was time to step down from sort of day-to-day -day presidential power, but there was also, I think, perhaps a feeling that there was a need for change. But you know, Nazarbayev continued behind the scenes to pull the strings. He stayed as sort of president of the Security Council, which is a fairly nebulous role, but which ensured that he was still pulling the strings. His family remained in positions of influence. And the peers behind the scenes have been something of a power struggle between Tokayev, who I think after more than two years in power, was beginning to assert himself a little bit more. People around Nazarbayev who were sort of pushing back against this. And there have been suggestions that some of the violence was fomented by supporters of Nazarbayev. 
who kind of took advantage of what appears to have been a genuine popular uprising to further fuel things. I mean, it, it's quite interesting if one looks at the kind of response of Tokayev's regime to what's been going on, there is some of, there are scraps of evidence for this. I mean, quite interestingly, just over a week ago, he fired Karim Masimov, who was a former prime minister and mm. who had subsequently become the head of the domestic intelligence agency. And he was not only fired, but he was then arrested on suspicion of high treason, which is quite a big deal to arrest the head of intelligence and accuse him of high treason. And the suspicion was that Masimov was close to Nazarbayev and that he was perhaps involved in this pushback by the Nazarbayev's people against uh, his successor. And so what does this mean for, for Nazarbayev? Well, Nazarbayev himself appears still to be in Kazakhstan. I mean, initially, there were, there were suggestions that he'd fled to Dubai. These were denied. Quite what he will do is not clear. There doesn't appear to be any attempt by the current regime to go after him or to, to take action against him, which in a sense perhaps might be politically popular because Nazarbayev himself was one of the targets of a number of the demonstrations. This week, anger was directed at independent Kazakhstan's first president, 81-year-old Nur Sultan Nazarbayev. Old man, get out, they chanted. But I think Tokayev has got a difficult kind of balancing act that he's got to carry out, which is that he has to presumably continue to reduce the influence of the people around Nazarbayev uh, and to sort of assert himself and sort of establish his own control over the country. But he has to be aware that they're quite powerful and so it has to be handled in quite a delicate way, I think. And just in terms of the country, in terms of how he deals with the population, they have been shooting at rioters and protesters. Does this mean there's likely to be sort of a, an even tougher crackdown? Or do you think at some level there'll be a recognition that there needs to be a greater nod to democracy? It's very difficult to predict what will happen because officially almost 8,000 people have been arrested across the country, which is an enormous number of people. So what is going to happen to these 8,000 people? Are they all going to be charged? Are they all going to be brought to court? Are there going to be examples made out of the so-called ringleaders? We don't know yet. That's something that's going to take place over the next few days, few weeks, and so on. And I think what happens to them will give us a bit of an indication of which direction the country is going in. But at the same time, uh, President Tokayev has to calm the population because, you know, however much the regime likes to portray the unrest as being the work of foreign spies or of troublemakers uh, or of Islamists or, or whatever, there is no doubt that there are genuine popular grievances. And these have to be addressed. The immediate reaction has been to reverse the increase in the price of fuel and the price of LPG for cars, which was sort of provoked the protests in the first place. If the president has got any sense, he will be looking at the sources of discontent in the country. He will be trying to find a, a more equal way of dividing or sort of sharing out the proceeds of the country's 
vast wealth, in a sense, to, to buy off the population to calm them down. But I think there is no way that we can expect the country to turn into a democracy, certainly not in the Western sense of the term, just because Tokayev, like Nazarbayev, his predecessor, can be expected to want to cling to power. And there's always the danger that if you allow people a free choice in elections and you, you stop clamping down on the opposition, that uh, far from being grateful to you for this step towards liberalisation, they react by voting you out. I mean, it'll be fascinating to watch what happens in Kazakhstan domestically. I guess the rest of the world also, though, will is completely enthralled by this story, partly because of what it means for the region. I mean... For Vladimir Putin across the border, watching all the riots and protests across Kazakhstan unfolding, is that the sort of thing that keeps him awake at night? The implications for Russia, I think, are very interesting. The very fact that Russian troops were called in as part of a, a broader peacekeeping, and I say that in inverted commas, force, was significant. And in a sense, that was a positive thing for Putin because it basically said when the leaders of countries such as Kazakhstan, also the same is true of some of the other former Soviet countries, when they have trouble, when they're facing problems from their own people, who do they turn to? They turn to Putin. So this very much plays to Putin's role of trying to see himself as presiding over not so much a reconstituted Soviet Union, but rather of a kind of a space in which Russia still is the guarantor of security, where Russia is still the big brother. And one level, it's reinforced Putin's position. On the other level, I think there are a number of slightly negative lessons for him. First of all, just how volatile that part of the world is. The speed with which the Kazakhs rose up and how an apparently small issue turned into a big issue very quickly. The same could happen in Russia itself, where we have the same problems of lack of democracy. We have the same unequal distribution of, of the proceeds of mineral wealth and so on. That was worrying for him. Also, I think there was a suggestion that Putin, who's been in power not quite as long as Nazarbayev was, but uh, certainly in power since 2000, has himself been looking at what happens when he finally steps down from the presidency. There have been suggestions that he might also want to move into a, a kind of an elder statesman kind of role, as Nazarbayev had, as kind of chairman of a security council or so on. This, I think, will have given him cause for thought, will have made him think, you know, however much you handpick your successor, however much you trust him or her, probably him, you can never be entirely sure. And when things start to go wrong, they will just throw you under a bus, as uh, Takayev appears to have done with Nazarbayev. Yeah, you can't expect them to be obedient puppets all the time. Exactly. We all thought that there was a danger that Russia would invade Ukraine in January. Does this make it more likely because they sort of want to show that they are a strong force in the region? Or does it make it less likely because they've already got instability on another border? They've had to send troops into Kazakhstan. Does it make it harder for them to go to war? Ultimately, the, the, the timing of this uprising in Kazakhstan w was unfortunate, coming as it did just on the eve of the talks that have been going on over the past few days between Russia and various representatives of the West. 
I don't think, to be honest, that it will have a huge effect on what happens as far as Ukraine is concerned. The Kazakh President Takayev promised that Russian troops would leave by next week. I think that's likely to happen. The Russian troops don't really appear to have played a particularly major role in Kazakhstan since arriving. They were there, I think, as a kind of a backstop, just in case Tokayev didn't have enough firepower to suppress the demonstrations, or indeed if his own security apparatus and his own troops refused to carry out orders. I think that the problem in Ukraine is a separate problem. It's all about Putin trying to push back the West. It's all about years and years of resentment about what Russia sees as a kind of a growing encroachment by NATO, by American forces, a kind of a shifting of the old Iron Curtain eastwards up to the borders of Russia. And, you know, I think the Kazakh crisis will calm down, but Ukraine and this broader standoff between Russia and the West will continue and will continue for a number of months to come until some kind of resolution is found, if, if indeed one is at all. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, the Sunday Times Europe editor, Peter Conradi. You can read more of Peter's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you'd like to get in touch with us with any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then do drop us a line to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. And if you enjoyed this episode and if you enjoy the podcast, please do leave us a review. It'll just help others to find it. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>